You're listening to an ACA podcast. Good evening and welcome to ACA. I'm Annabelle Lacroix, the creator for Public Programs. It's a great pleasure to see you all tonight for writing and concept. And I'd like to start by acknowledging the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and ongoing carers on the land here at ACA. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, elders and Nawid Kalan Brinks of the Boomerang and all Aboriginal and First Nation um, people here tonight, and especially Eugenia Flynn. And we are pleased to continue our partnership with Writing and Concept, and following Open Special Workshop's um, great lecture last year, um, and continue to support and explore the potential of writing with a diverse range of contemporary practitioners, artists, and writers. So now I would like to um, invite Jan von Skyk, the co director of Mindy Van Sky Architects Lecture at RMIT and also the founder of Writing and Concept um, to come introduce tonight's lecture, Beyond Indifference, More Than Difference by Eugenia Flynn. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks, Aka. My name is Jan Van Skyk. Welcome to, I think it's the maybe the 53rd or 54th Writing and Concepts lecture. I'd like to add to your acknowledgement of country just by very quickly uh, pointing out that uh, the land that we're standing on was stolen and that theft coincided with acts of genocide and this theft and these acts of genocide are well documented. Um, that's probably not news to you. These facts are not recognised by federal government and I urge you to write to your local members and have them address this uh, record at a federal government level if you haven't already done so. Um, in this lecture series, I invite um, artists um, and practitioners in the visual arts in the form of writing to reflect on the role that writing plays in the development of the concepts in their practice and the development of their practice, and uh, perhaps more loosely sometimes to simply reflect on their practice through that lens, thereby giving them an opportunity to take a slightly new look at the work they've been thinking about and doing for their entire careers. Tonight, um, I would like to introduce Eugenia Flynn and she's going to be giving a talk called uh, Beyond Indifference, More Than Difference. Eugenia is a writer, arts worker, and community organiser. She runs the blog Black Thoughts Live Here, and her thoughts on the politics of race, identity, gender, and arts and culture have been published widely. With over 10 years' experience in community arts and cultural development, Eugenia has worked across multiple art forms and within a variety of contexts. Most recently, Eugenia has worked with Black Dot Gallery, Eleven Collective, Ibajiri Theatre Company, and Peril Magazine. Ilbajira Theatre Company. I mispronounced that. I'm terribly sorry. Eugenia identifies as Aboriginal Tiwi and Larikia, Chinese, Malaysian, and Muslim, working within her multiple communities to create change through literature, art, politics, and community development. Please welcome Eugenia. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm just waiting for the PowerPoint, so I'm hoping that everyone will look there and not at me. That's my smoke and mirrors decoy. Hopefully it will come up soon. Um, thank you, Jan, for um, that introduction and to Annabelle for the welcome to ACCA, and, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak tonight, and, and thank you to you all for, for coming. Um, I want to start with an acknowledgement of country as well, and 
I acknowledge and recognise the sovereignty of the Bunwurrung people and the broader Kulin nations, particularly the Wurundjeri. I acknowledge that they never ceded their sovereignty and I acknowledge that we meet on their stolen land tonight. I make this acknowledgement in recognition of the sacrifices uh, that the Bunwurrung people have been forced to accept in order for us to be here tonight to have what is an incredibly privileged conversation uh, about writing and concepts and about art and literature. And I make this acknowledgement as a practice of my contemporary cultural uh, practice in recognition of, of that ongoing dispossession of First Peoples across this continent, in recognition of the change in our lives that was sparked in 1788, forever on that day. I acknowledge the ancestors and the elders of the Bunurong people as warriors on whose shoulders I stand, as I stand on the shoulders of my own people, my own ancestors and my own elders. Aboriginal people have been telling stories for thousands of generations on this continent, and I call it a continent, not a country. Our connection to country is intimately tied to our law, L-O-R-E. It forms the basis of our sovereignty, and our law is handed down across those thousands of generations, from the dreaming until now, through a medium that I guess we now call storytelling. Our ability to spin a yarn, to commit a narrative to the movement of the body, to share knowledge through our visual cultures and through performance, through the word, through song, this is the ultimate expression of who we are as First Peoples on multiple different levels. Which way do I? I want to get it to move. Could you maybe just click to the next slide? That one, yeah. We're, no, we're good, keep going. The next, that one. So this is a picture of my family. Um, and I'm the little one at the front. I'm actually looking down at my birthday cake, which was chocolate with sprinkles. And anyone who knows me, I'm food obsessed. So this is a very typical picture. Um, so this is actually on my fourth birthday and I have three sisters and my late father and my late mother and there's a family friend there as well. That's um, a picture from Adelaide where I grew up. And I wanted to start with my family. Um, that's incredibly important to me. And I started as a writer in my bedroom as a tween, uh, writing poems and prose in my journal. It's very angsty. It got me through some pretty tough times. Um, that's a story for another time. But my love affair with literature really started as a child. And my father was an academic. He'd buy me either a book or a teddy bear. Anytime it was my birthday or if I asked for a toy, I never got the toy. I was presented with a book or a teddy bear. So um, later I would go to the library with my sister and we would borrow like staggering armfuls of books and go home and just read them day and night, not sleep, not eat, and just keep reading. And I would borrow those books and I would, I would read them with my mother. She's the smartest woman I've ever known. Um, and read them with her as she tried to master the, the written English language. 
I grew up um, as culturally both Chinese, Malaysian and Aboriginal with a very strong grounding in both cultures. So we went to Chinese language school on Saturdays, we practiced Chinese folk dances and other cultural forms. And over the years I, I practiced for sort of lack of better terminology, both contemporary and traditional Aboriginal culture. I don't like those terms, but um, don't have another way to express that. And I helped organise local events celebrating Aboriginal cultural forms. At 15, I um, worked on uh, Adelaide's only Aboriginal radio show, so I learned a lot about music, Aboriginal music. I danced not very well. Um, and from the time I was about 11, I hung around a gallery that my sister worked in called Tandanya National Aboriginal Cultural Institute. And I read those books on the stairs day in, day out as she went about the gallery business. Um, as in lots of families like ours, she had a very, um, in lots of involvement in raising me. And um, while my parents were busy doing the things that they needed to do. My upbringing was also an intensely political one. My father worked at a place called Aboriginal Task Force, which was somewhat of a radical black centre at um, what's now the University of South Australia. It used to be, to be called the South Australian Institute of Technology. And I grew up wandering the halls of that centre with my sisters, watching them roller skate in the loading dock, um, which was pretty cool back then, and participating in protests. So. My dad was involved in organising convoys of buses that went from across the country for the 1988 bicentenary protests. My whole family climbed on board those buses and joined in Sydney more than 40,000 other protesters. And I remember very distinctly driving to Lake Mungo National Park and being overwhelmed by the emotion, again as a young kid of only nine or ten, when the remains of Mungo Woman were repatriated um, to Lake Mungo National Park and my father had specifically driven us there to witness that as a family. And I was 14 years old when Hanson gave her maiden speech in Parliament, demonising both sides of my cultural identity and when Howard ushered in a new era of Australian white nationalism, there's no other way to put that. And I was yelled at on the street and made to feel like that dirty Aboriginal kid who always had her hand out begging by people I thought were school friends. In a post 9-11 era with Islam my chosen religion, I continue to experience everyday racism on the street. You may be wondering why I'm sharing such deeply personal stories with a room full of mostly strangers. Um, it's not a pity party. It's to share motivation for my writing practice first and foremost, to share a different story of the very constructed idea of what is Australia. In both the visual and the literary cultures of Australia, space has more recently been opened up um, to include the narratives and perspectives of First Peoples, of other diverse peoples, cultural, sexual, uh, able-bodiedness and gender diverse peoples. This and other spaces that we'll talk about in a minute are the spaces into which I write, into which I practice my art. I write for myself first and foremost, for that little girl on the steps of the gallery who pretty much only read Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl books, British books, the colonisers' books, because that was what was available predominantly. I knew a lot about Britain. And I write for my family and my multiple communities second. And I write for those young women 
particularly who grow up in a world that demonstrates in a variety of different ways that their cultures and their lives are devalued. And I began writing because I very, very rarely saw myself in the words I read up, I, I, I grew up reading, and I hardly ever saw my point of view or my stories told. So back to that space, that little teeny tiny space that's been opened up um, for diverse peoples to tell their stories. That space uh, is more often than not moderated by the dominant culture, what it views as important, what it values, what it can understand. This is how we end up with pity narratives, with the downtrodden Aboriginal, the grateful migrant, the pitiful refugee. This is how we end up with token voices, um, you know, work that's wonderful and should be there because the work is good. But if the work is good, by whose standards is it judged? And this is how we end up missing a plethora of good work that's, all, that's out there that's not up to standard, not up to that standard. It's misunderstood by those with the power to include difference and diversity, and they get to set what diversity looks like. But what if we thought about diversity as more than the inclusion of difference? What if we pushed beyond that response to indifference? Um, we push beyond that silence. And if we have moved beyond the silence of diverse peoples to the inclusion of difference, how do we push beyond that space to other ways of practicing literary and visual cultures? I'm gonna see if this works. No, we need to go, there we go. In critiquing white feminism, distinguished professor Eileen Morton Robinson states that whiteness as difference, privilege, and identity is not marked, named, or challenged. Perhaps this is because it is perceived as being natural and, no and normal and is therefore invisible. That is to say that cultural diversity as the inclusion of difference implies that only non-white people are raced, are racialized. Only non-white people, only they are different. The unspoken and unnamed opposite to this then is the idea that what is the norm, uh, what is not different, those who are not raced or racialized, those, those people are white people. And in speaking about the cultural diversity in the arts then, what this means is the inclusion of difference, the inclusion of cultural diversity in the arts, it continues to center the unnamed norm of whiteness. Beginning in 1788 as English culture became Anglo-Celtic and a, a homogenous whiteness through the early days of colonization um, as more people came from the empire. And this culture has transmuted into what we now know as Australian culture. And Australian culture has in very unspoken ways become defined through its continual centering around that homogenous whiteness and co-opts people into it. And the inclusion of cultural difference continues this centering by placing culturally diverse art and cultural practices as always different, as always the other to that centre. So what can we do instead of always centering whiteness through diversity? Um, I've spent a lot of my practice sharing 
what I kind of term alternative narratives to write for those people who were written out of history um, and out of Australian culture. And I know that lots of other First Peoples do a lot of that work, particularly engaging with archive or engaging with um, stories that were not kept within uh, the Western European tradition of documentation and written archives. And this is a picture of my great-grandmother, Widji, um, who worked serving refreshments at the Adelaide River Railway Station in the Top End. Um, and that's a picture I took recently because I drove through there. Um, it's not too far from Darwin. So they have a, uh, a railway museum and they use that, that image of her uh, to welcome people on the signage there at the railway museum. If you ever get a chance to go, you can check it out. But my great-grandmother, Widji, she had a relationship um, with, I assume, the man in the picture. Um, I don't actually know. That's not something I've been able to find out. But Widji um, had a relationship with a Chinese man who was then sent out um, of the country, effectively deported during the White Australia policy. And they had uh, multiple children together. He supposedly took one back with him to China. Um, and uh, which was a son, and I think that that tells you about how race and gender intersected in those days. And there were two children that were left uh, in Australia and they were sent to the Tiwi Islands. And those relationships um, were particularly targeted. Um, a lot of research into Indigenous-Asian relations um, by scholars, particularly Dr Peter Stevenson, have really shown that those relationships were targeted um, specifically. They were legislated against, so they were made illegal. Um, they were uh, targeted to be broken up in the set. The men who were often Asian men that had come to the continent to work were sent back overseas. Um, and quite often the children of those relationships were taken away um, and became part of the stolen generation, but they were specifically targeted because they became what was termed in the North coloured people. Um, so coloured people were uh, non-white um, immigrants as well as these children of these kinds of liaisons became what's termed coloured children. And that was to ensure the purity of white Australia and out of a fear of a very permeable north that was very close in geographical proximity to Asia, but also um, very far from the centre of kind of white invasion and where, where Britain had been able to colonise, the north of Australia was still very unpopulated and so there was quite a fear about uh, Asian takeover from the North, which we see play out in lots of different ways in Australia. So despite that kind of specific targeting to break up those relationships and to break up um, those families and take those children away, Indigenous and Asian communities very much continued to interact with one another. They produced very distinct nuances. I wouldn't say it was a separate culture, but they, they, they created very distinct nuances of Aboriginal culture all across Northern Australia, from Broome to Darwin, all the way through to the Torres Strait and Queensland. 
um, northern Queensland. And I wanted to read an article um, or a piece that I wrote for Lindsay, which is a publication that looks at cultures. And it's a really good example of how Australia, well, it's a response to how Australia was constructed as white Australia, both through the legislation uh, and, the, and through the government intervention that I just spoke about. But how these alternative narratives continue to exist outside of that white Australian story and continue to disrupt that story. So bear with me and I'll just grab it. It's really hard to speak for this long, so I'm just going to have a drink. Um, so as I said, this is something that I wrote for a publication called um, Lindsay that's about looking at cultures from the inside. We meet in one of the more elegant eateries of Collingwood Smith Street. Outside, it is cold, wet, and miserable. Inside, marble counters are covered in delectable cakes and pastries. Pasta dishes and other Mediterranean delicacies are piled high behind the deli glass. As we sit, purple and white wisteria flowers hang overhead, and I sip my ginger lemon tea. We are a small group of friends, northerners who have headed south of the continent. From Adelaide to Perth, and a strong contingent from northern Queensland, me, I was born in Adelaide, a few years after my parents moved down south from Darwin, the youngest of the brood. Now on the eastern seaboard, Melbourne specifically, we are here to chase our dreams, work hard and enjoy life. We carry with us our culture, our way of speech, our language we have saved from the effects of colonisation, our traditions and our food. Imported dugong, barramundi, mango and turtle all frozen and packaged in the homes of our relatives sent on planes to our eagerly awaiting mouths. Unpacked and cooked, the chili we make complements, causing the treasures of the north to sing in our mouths before being tempered by the neutrality of the rice we always have at hand. Food is a part of who we are. Aboriginal Asian communities descended from multiple generations of blackfellow women and men who built relationships and families with Asian people from a variety of different countries. Malaysia, China, the Philippines, Japan and Indonesia. Larrakia, Yawuru, Waiban, Darwin, Broome, Thursday Island. In my case, an Aboriginal great-grandmother and Chinese great-grandfather then Aboriginal Chinese grandmother and Aboriginal Filipino grandfather. Lastly, Aboriginal Asian father and Chinese Malaysian mother. Rice is an everyday staple, different from the bread of the Southern Aboriginal families who live with the legacy of the sugar, flour, tea, ration days. Susu, the word many Aboriginal people use for breast milk and breasts is also found in Malaysia and Indonesia where it means milk in the local Bahasa language. Whether it was our word first or theirs, I do not know. Long before the Europeans came, the relationship between Northern Aboriginal communities and Asian people was already well established and the lines continue to be blurred. Antithesis to the way that cultural diversity is typically consumed by the plate, our food is not found in restaurants. 
available only in our homes, at our celebrations, and beside our morning rituals. Chicken vermicelli is perhaps Filipino or Chinese in origin, and each family has its own tradition in how they make it. Ginger, shiitake mushrooms, vermicelli, and chicken pieces on the bone all form part of my family's recipe. Other families put potato and carrots in theirs, no bones in their chicken at all. While some may eat it with bread, my family eats it exclusively with rice. And for my cousins, it is the star dish of their annual Christmas meal. Blachang is often served on the side, a chili condiment, homemade and special purpose blenders to stop the strong flavor permeating any other foods. A potent mix of chili, shrimp paste and aromatics, sometimes giblets, depending on family tradition. The blachung is fried in the backyard to avoid the acrid sting of the frying chili fumes. Before I moved to Melbourne, curry chicken was served at my farewell in Adelaide, and I remember that day well. A staple in almost every Aboriginal Asian family household, curry chicken has spread across the country to become an everyday meal in most blackfellow homes whether Aboriginal Asian descendants or not. Eaten with rice or bread, made with homemade curry paste or store-bought curry powder, everyone has their own take on the classic curry chicken. A good sing-along with the guitar, a mix of country music, old Aboriginal songs and other cousins. My auntie enjoys herself at my farewell. She tells me it reminds her of the old days in Darwin when the Torres Strait Islands' own Seaman Dan used to travel west, probably further on to Broome too performing for the mob along the way. As she says his name, I am instantly soothed, imagining the soft croon of his voice, the tropical island lilt of the accompanying ukulele, and the rich blues rhythms of his guitar. A friend asks why we have no namas to eat at the goodbye party, and I am jolted back to my farewell. The mention of namas makes my mouth itch, thinking of the sting of its sour chili flavor. Thought to be derived from a similarly named and similarly composed Japanese dish, white fish is sliced and pickled in vinegar and lemon or lime juice. Onion, garlic and chilli are added to pack a punch. My uncle used to cook up a damper to accompany ours, with a hard crust on the outside and a soft, warm inside. Namas juices are easily sopped up by damper straight out of the oven. Namas is not something I know how to make, only how to eat. I turn to my friend and say, that is something I will have to learn how to cook. And I know I will, to keep my connection to my culture alive. So I have to ask myself, what if sharing alternative narratives continues to do that same centering of whiteness? Even as I name it alternative narratives, I often question if this denotes the same idea that such narratives are alternatives to a norm of whiteness. Moving from a homogenous Australian culture to one that includes cultural difference, to one where myself as a writer, I write my own experiences in my own form to write for myself and for my own people. This is part of the decolonising project. This is what decolonising is. It's about shifting the centre away from Eurocentric, white and Western cause to different centres. 
This is a quote here from uh, a Cameroonian scholar called Akila Mabembe. It demonstrates the nuance of decolonization. He writes that decolonizing Ala Ngugi, um, who's another scholar um, of decolonization, is not about closing the door to European or other traditions. It is about defining clearly what the centre is. And so now I, I wanted to share a poem that I wrote for an exhibition called um, Khalas, Enough. Uh, it was at UNSW Galleries earlier this year. It's already wrapped up, unfortunately. And I wrote this poem because underneath the gaze of the West, Muslims are constantly called upon to react. Um, we're always cast as that different to the norm of Western whiteness. And there's a drive to respond to the limitless and shifting demands of the conservative right. And then the everyday pressure to conform to Australian cultural norms and social norms, whatever they are, I don't think that they're very clearly defined, but there's always that pressure to conform to those things. And often within this atmosphere of being acted upon and reacting to that uh, as a reflexive re practice, young Muslims are often left to navigate those compounding challenges of trying to fit in as a young person, trying to fit into the demands of the West and trying to fit in with their own sense of self which is kind of the most important thing, I think. And in Islam, there's this concept of being a stranger, of being a person that goes against the crowd, and I, I wanted to play with that in this poem. It's really short. Uh, it's called Strangers in Love. Be a stranger, sister. Go on, then. The prayers you keep, the hands you shake, the places you enter, and the words you don't say. Let me greet you here in this city of sin. Together we can be strangers in love. So this poem, I think, really demonstrates that form of decolonization, that shifting of the centre. It's about speaking directly to the young Muslim woman, about speaking to them on their own terms and using their own terms to talk about their concerns, their matters of interest. That's how I practice decolonization in my writing. That's how I shift from that center to my own cultural centers. And that's incredibly important, I think, um, in thinking about um, my own practice. So to return to the idea of diversity in the arts and how we can push beyond diversity as um, the inclusion of difference, to think about different centres, to think of alternative narratives that are decolonised, to think about that uh, re-centre, to re-centre First Peoples and, and uh, to re-centre our cultures. Friend and colleague, uh, Tanya Kanas, she's an amazing theatre practitioner, if you don't know her. She writes of cultural diversity in the arts, that diversity is a white word, or as Hassan Hajj describes, a white concept. It seeks to make sense through the white lens of difference by creating, curating, and demanding palatable definitions of diversity, but only in relation to what this means in terms of whiteness. I think there's a lot to unpack in that. And Tanya, in the same piece, goes on to advocate for what she calls multiplicity. She states that multiplicity, as opposed to authenticity, 
defies constructs that are palpable and easily consumable to the dominant narrative. And it's here that I wanted to advocate a little bit more um, to think that we really do need to move beyond the idea of cultural diversity as merely the inclusion of difference. That we need to work on broadening the scope of the tastemakers, um, the editors, the publishers, the curators, the arts workers. If these are diverse peoples with sophisticated palettes across a range of different cultures, then this will in turn impact how our work is received, how all work is received, whether that comes from people who are raced or whether they are not, whether they are classified as diverse artists or not. In literary culture, in visual culture, it's important to move beyond the idea of diversity as the inclusion of difference, to think about literary and visual cultures as having different centres that receive diverse work with a sophisticated palette to support those alternative narratives that are decolonized, to erode dominant narratives and favor a multiplicity of diverse cultures. This is a photo of me wearing a shirt by um, Dark and Disturbing. That's a curatorial project um, by artist Vernon Arkey. Um, I love this T-shirt. I can't fit in it anymore, which is so sad. But it says, does not assimilate into other cultures very well. And people, if you know Vernon Arkey's work, he's very playful in that way, but also extremely um, direct um, in his messaging. Um, and I think that it's a really interesting concept to think about not assimilating, um, but also to think about how difference, the inclusion of difference in diverse arts is being treated at the moment. Um, I wanted to end on this and to kind of do one last reading of a piece that I wrote called The Classroom. Um, I think what it does is it really demonstrates that if we moved beyond that cultural diversity as the inclusion of difference, if we think of it in terms of multiplicity and shifted centres, then what we can do is truly expand Australia's cultural practices. So funnily enough, I wrote this for um, the lifted brow. Um, and it's a little bit playful and a little bit rageful at the same time. It's called The Classroom. I want to say this memory is vivid, but I associate the word vivid with positive feelings, so let's just say this memory is strong. Strong and soft, blunt and sharp, all of these things at all of the same time. Vivid is far too simple. You see, in this memory, I'm sitting on the floor of a classroom. I think I'm about eight years old and the afternoon sun is streaming through the windows. It's the late 80s or early 90s, I can't be sure, and we are learning about Aboriginal people for the first time. On the television, there plays a video of an Aboriginal ceremony. Corroboree, it was called back then, in Ma or Bungal, as I know it now. And as the women on the screen start to sing, some of the children in the class begin to laugh. From the vantage point of over 20 years gone by, let's reflect and say that this laughter was merely nervous embarrassment, not mean-spirited. 
I'll be generous and say it was rare that anything Aboriginal was taught at school back then, let alone Aboriginal and positive, and that my classmates were just scared of the unknown. I want to remind myself that they were simply children, products of society at the time, let them off the hook. But I can be unforgiving too. Remind myself that I was a child just like them. Remember the embarrassment I felt as the only Aboriginal kid in the class, coming from the only Aboriginal family at the school. You know that wince of humiliation you get when that feeling hits you hard? There's actual pain with how demeaned you feel that others find your culture something to laugh at. It's fast and it's sharp and it stays with you for over 20 years and probably will forever after. Although embarrassment stays only a while if you, if you learn to have pride in your culture no matter who laughs at it or how hard. Instead, it turns to anger when you feel that same nervous embarrassment from the white friend next to you passing by a black fella begging for money on the street. It becomes annoying when you instinctively question why your white co-worker has started saying yo instead of hi or hello when they see you in the office. Then there's the laughter when you call out some tough guy turned puddle who screamed fucking abo from a moving car that then got stuck in traffic moments later. Laughter, anger, annoyance. These are all the different ways I grew out of feeling embarrassed about others' fear of the unknown. Maybe white Australia can take a leaf out of my book. I moved past embarrassment years ago, made fat with the pride from a steady diet of art made by Aboriginal people. Titus, Christine Arnu, Ian Abdullah, Bangara, Warwick Thornton, Kunye McInerney. I am forever shaped by the lyrics of the song We Have Survived by No Fixed Address, inspired by the crafting of Kim Scott's words in Benang, haunted by the poems The Life and Death of Robert Walker. If I imagine myself sitting cross-legged in that same classroom, I'm me now, but they are still them then. The memory changes and I can fantasize that the pride from a thousand artworks and performances fuels my resistance. They laugh and there I am, a little black duck with water running off its back. Literature, song, movement, artwork, film. The liberal left, the conservative, bi-central desert, dot paintings, upper class. I see them all the time, and I think I recognize one or two of them from the primary school classroom. They've been on the same diet as me, so the laughter is gone, replaced with new things. Silent fluster when they see intoxicated Aboriginal people outside the gallery opening that they themselves got drunk at. Overuse of empathy due, due to a strong sense of white guilt. And it's everywhere too, except really only during Reconciliation Week and Harmony Day. Oh, and within the Indigenous platforms in every art form which are created to promote inclusivity, but somehow only ever end up promoting segregation. Wait, here's all those things that move me through embarrassment again. Laughter, anger, annoyance, anger. I know an Aboriginal visual artist who rolls around good old Melbourne town wearing a self-made T-shirt with a single word on it, token. Maybe I should call him an artist who just happens to be Aboriginal. If I imagine myself back in the classroom again, this time the teacher picks the ceremony for us to watch because they think it is a great example of performance. They appreciate the story being told, the impeccable technique of the dancers' moves and the unique tone and control of the singers. I'm proud to see myself reflected in the art that shapes the nation. I'm sitting in the afternoon sun that is streaming through the windows and I'm beaming. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Eugenia, for your brilliant talk and for your generosity in sharing your story and, and reading your writing. I do have this microphone. Um, if anyone has any question, we're happy to, um, to open to the floor. Thanks very much. That was really great. Um, I was doing a bit of work with the gallery recently to help them find some words for a thing that they were doing. I won't name the gallery, but it's a gallery that has a very, and has had for a long time, a very specific agenda to um, have a very diverse um, uh, field of artists that they invite work from. And they were, the words, we were trying to find words to describe what, what they were doing. And we ended up, they were worried that by saying, oh, these people included because they are from this background or that background or that background, that, it, that people would only see their backgrounds and wouldn't see the work. And so the trick we came up with was to say that perhaps what the gallery was doing was deprioritizing works from overrepresented cultures. So it points to the thing that there's too much of rather than pointing to the thing that there isn't enough of. What do you think about that as a strategy? Look, I mean, I think it's an interesting um, tension that a lot of artists have. I mean, artists want to be taken for the fact that their work is good, but also um, a lot of artists from diverse backgrounds, not all, but a lot bring um, politics or bring a particular cultural perspective to their work and lived experience to their work that um, informs what they do and they want to talk about that. I mean, I think about that in my bio, but I made a very political decision to put in my cultural identifiers because I am proud of that and because it does inform my work. Like, you know, my, my work is unable to be... Um, extracted from that. So I think that one of the clever things that that kind of statement makes is that it does the naming of whiteness or that centre that is so often unnamed and unmarked. It's just this norm and everything else is different to it, but it never gets named. So I think naming that is an important first step. Yeah, yeah I think that's great. As you talked about um, what you identified in your biography, I suddenly thought, what would happen if I identified mine every time I read mine out and um, the sorts of conversations that I would end up in? So mine would say, um, I, uh, Jan van Skyk is an English-born architect who was brought up in South Africa and moved to Australia. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are, there other, are there other questions? Don't be shy. Ask questions. Go for it. Hi. Hi. That was great. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> uh, I just... Um, my, like, you know, I witnessed that, oh, my goodness, we haven't been diverse for, diverse for ages. We've got to be diverse now. But then it can really be this thing where it's like, oh, we've got to have that... Um, progressive front of this, like, United Colours of Benetton thing happening, but 
the voices and the presentations are those that are most palatable and it's also often seems like it's like, well, you want to put those things on the wall, but um, can the people representing that still be a certain way and to present themselves palatably and politely and what is your, you know, experience of having, you know, I mean, you don't have to talk about your own experience, but what's your comment on that situation? About having to make your art palatable? Yeah, and yourself as well in yeah. that context, like who get often gets chosen is the, you know, things that people that can be seen also as like the bridge. Um, sure. You know. I, I applied for a diversity thing recently and I, I was like, oh, why didn't my application get accepted? And I sent it to my sister and she was like, let me tell you the million and one ways why your application didn't get accepted because it was too radical and you were talking about, you know, kind of how cultural diversity is kind of shit and all of that sort of stuff. So, and then I was having a moment of realisation and was like, that's why. Um, I think that, I mean, I talk about this with lots of artists and about career progression because you can see certain artists go really far and sometimes that is about what the art world is willing to accept. And I think, you know, in my talk I also talked about what the art world understands. So when you come from a different cultural frame, sometimes there are different things that make sense to me. Like if I see a show like what's on at Acker at the moment, I will see different or I will read different things into what's in that show than um, non-Aboriginal people would. So I think that um, artists struggle with that a lot. I know some that do, especially artists that are outspoken. So if a gallery does something really messed up and they're not willing to compromise and they say things, then they become the difficult or the angry artist or the, the difficult person that curators or tastemakers don't want to work with anymore. I think I have... Um, the privilege of sometimes being seen as very soft and I'm really aware of how that is perceived and I'm really aware of other artists who aren't seen that way and I think that the more, I mean that's kind of the point of why I wanted to bring up that discussion about tastemakers as curators and people who hold positions of power and that it, it's not just enough to say we're going to have diverse writers and we're going to have diverse artists, that people in positions of power also need to be diverse because they will think about things differently. They have a different eye for things. They have a different context that they bring to viewing work. And I think that that's important. And, and yeah, I think the art world can be really full of people... Um, who just want to have a lot of fun parties and when you are a disruptor to that, then you become an outcast. That's not really helpful, I'm sorry, but... That's just... No, that, I mean, you're just echoing my experience, so that's fine. That's yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? You're really quiet. I have a little comment um, around your ideas of um, decentering and how you talked about whiteness as a norm. It really reminded me of um, 
a comment that Nina Lique, who is a, um, a scholar from Copenhagen, and um, she wrote about intersectionality and, um, and feminism. And it was a panel on uh, black feminism as part of um, unfinished business. And um, at the time when she published books around uh, intersectionality, she was really criticized for being a, a white person. And that has really changed the way she works now because she said, um, really, it wasn't really enough what she was doing in the writing. It was also her position within the institution. Um, and that really led her to really um, reconsider the structures around her work as well and ask, well, what can I give up, um, you know, myself as a white person? And I think that sort of quite echoes what you said around um, the norm and the institution. Yeah, I mean, I think academia is a whole other beast in which the power structures are, I would say, even more than the art world, very much old school structures. And so, um, yeah, quite often that even when people are talking about, take for example, critical race theory or whiteness, that quite often the people that will rise to the top of that conversation who can get publications and be published and achieve academic success and gain positions will be white people within that. But I mean, I think feminism is a really, really interesting area in terms of like this idea about the inclusion of difference. Feminism had that conversation in the 80s. So, you know, that um, white Western feminism was really critiqued in the 80s as being um, uh, that, you know, white women didn't see themselves as raced, that they made themselves the every woman. So they were just the same as men make themselves the every human, that that's what white women were doing within feminism. But um, anyway, I'm gonna give, not going to give you a lecture on feminism. Anyway, that discussion happened, I think, in, in the 80s, and that's where uh, intersectional feminism kind of came from. And it, I think it's interesting that we're in 2018, but that conversation hasn't really shifted from then, even though we've moved from second wave feminism we're all the way in fourth wave feminism, but intersectionality is still a conversation that we're having two waves onward. I think that's disturbing. Anyway. Um, oh, go for it. Okay, this is kind of like a comment and a question. Um, so I think as a student, I feel a lot of pressure to validate my alterity or like, you know, multiplicity of um, identity through adhering to like traditional academia um, and that's like a huge pressure and um, I was just wondering like how do you traverse that horrible <laughs> place of um, having to validate the change that you want to incite through having to conform to um, the, you know, the systems that exist. I mean, it's a thing. It happens. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think it depends on whether you want to conform to those systems or if you want to provide a critique. And um, Professor Eileen Morton-Robinson is... Um, I'm working with her on my PhD. And um, she has always said to me that it's about you have to know that system and you have to know that world really well to be able to throw stones at it. So 
in a way, it's a little bit like beating people at their own game. I, I think that that's the importance, but having very strong networks of other people who are doing similar work to work through that with, I think is also important. I mean, that's what I do. I just have really strong networks. Yeah, which is like, I guess, can be difficult when the institutions that you might be attending are, you know, like, there's often not lecturers who will under necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I know exactly um, so yeah, what you're talking about. Obviously, I find other places. like Yeah, you know. yeah. I think finding that experience outside of those institutions. I mean, I think when I was talking about alternative narratives, one of the things that I did when I, you know, I started writing kind of before social media and digital media became, um, you know, before people would go to particular um, publications to read and now everything is quite free source and, you know, like everything has changed in that world and there's a lot more diversity in terms of what you can read. Back when I started, there wasn't and that's why I started writing and I, I think one of the things that I did is I went... If, you, if I can just write for me and just put that out there, then that's enough for me. And it just it happened to find an audience and move from there. So I, I'm a big believer in that thing about creating your own centre. And if it's um, real to you, then it will find people around it. Yeah, yeah. that's a really nice way of looking at it. Nice. Was there... So much a question. Um, I find the whole notion of decentering or finding another center really exciting, and I'm I'm struck by um, the idea of that culturally, but also finding um, gaining a lot of traction at the moment. For example, in our Liberal Party, which is now actually talking about having a quota of women, and that you need to do something as radical and arguably flawed as that in order to gather a mass that will then be able to actually affect change. And um, I just was wondering if for you that notion of having quotas is anathema or if it's something that you would find appropriate in varying contexts? I think that quotas can be really useful in providing an entree, but I think that quotas only work if um, there are support structures for those communities to create good work, to have access to the institution that might have a quota, because quite often, organisations will set up a quota and be like, we're this extremely elite institution, why are there no Aboriginal people applying for our quota program? And there's no access, they haven't engaged the community, so the community don't know about it, um, the community don't live up to their standard, all of those sorts of things. So I think that um, quotas can help. I think more interesting than quotas and identified positions, if we were thinking about institutions, would be 
um, because quite often organisations will do that and they'll go, okay, well, let's find the Aboriginal money for that. Oh, there's this money from the Victorian multicultural whatever to be able to fund the diversity role. It needs to be part of core business every day. Organisations need to be thinking about, well, as a path of the course, we're going to employ Aboriginal people in a range of positions, whether they're identified as a quota or not, or whether they are, um, but, but it just becomes, you know, that, that's the idea of shifting a centre is that it just becomes everyday business. It becomes the, the new norm. Yeah. So I think quotas can be helpful, but in sort of starting, but it, it also needs to go beyond that. Yeah, and also, like, organisations need to completely change to accommodate different people. It's not just about having a quota so that people can come in and just put on a suit and be the same as everybody else. Yeah. Is there Sorry, another? I just wanted to add to that. Because yeah. also, there needs to be that support structure for those people in those space at those spaces because it's just so much to be that token in that space and yes. have to, and it puts the burden on you as the token to like do yeah, that education in, in those spaces again and again. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Can I add, just add my favourite anecdote about quotas, which I like quotas and the reason I like them is because of a study that I read which was specifically about gender quotas. But the study showed that um, if you have, say, an organisation where 75% of the employees are male and you then mandate that only 50% can be, you find that 25% of them were actually shit employees and they were there just because it was easy for them to be there. And once there's a quota, it's not easy for those people that are actually shit at their jobs and they just sort of disappear. So all the... Um, lazy white men, or well, 25% of them, just disappear. And so then things can be as they should be. We have one more question. Could you talk more about um, uh, the... Uh, their expect or you know the um, their standard their their way of seeing their expectation because um, that is such a sticky and huge thing and I would enjoy hearing your perspective and letting loose on that a little sure. bit. Sure, I mean I think we see that across all walks of life. I mean we've just seen it with someone like Serena Williams who's like greatest athlete of all time and you are only palatable so long as you stay in your box and you know we saw that with Adam Goods you may not know who that is uh he's an Aboriginal footballer who is a great footballer but um was called all sorts of names because he spoke out against racism and then you're outside of what's comfortable so I mean I think we see that in all walks of life and I think in the arts, you know, just as you were talking about Texter, like you, if you are not palatable or if you don't play the game in a certain way, your art can be marginalised like that immediately. And I think also it's not just about 
speaking out and art that disrupts and makes people uncomfortable and not just about the art itself but also about whether you challenge the status quo as an artist. I mean, it's also about things like um, art that people go, I don't think that's very good and I go, really? How do you not see that that's amazing? Or that people will go, ah... this is my go-to Aboriginal dance performance company as opposed to going, actually, there's, like, lots and lots of other types of dance out there that are really innovative and interesting, but you can't see them because a lot of... I mean, I've heard stories of festivals who've been pitched a show and they've gone, oh, we've already got our First Nations content, so we're, we're good... Um, you know, that kind of stuff, I think, can come into play. So I I think it's a really um, fraught area and and for me it's about um, just employing more diverse peoples that can see through that and are attending different events and are seeing different shows and go, you haven't heard of this person before but let me tell you they're amazing and we should program them and that kind of thing. I think when you have tastemakers that are um, that are at that level, that they're able to influence, and then I think that eventually, you know, tastemakers are tastemakers. The other people will catch up and they'll go. Actually, now I'm really interested. But I think the other danger, and this is very much in the literary world, the, the, there's a danger of. Um, when is the interest in diversity going to run out? I have a friend who has been working on edits for a book and her publisher very politely said, can you hurry up with that? Because I, And this person was... The editor was also culturally diverse and they were trying to signal a warning. And they, they said to them, you need to hurry up with this because I don't know how much longer this... Um, the market for di- culturally diverse work is going to last. And so I think that, you know, that's the way that markets work. And so I think that's a danger that we run into as well. So having more diverse people in positions of power so that it can't just be seen as a passing fad is important as well. Yeah. I have a quick question about that because I feel like before we were using diversity, we might have been using multiculturalism, and I'm wondering Mm -hmm. why we made that, or did you notice when that change happened, and was it because it was, like, poisoned, because we weren't actually being very accepting of different cultures at all, or was it something else? Um, I think that multiculturalism was a policy, like a a government policy, that it is specifically about immigration, and um, specifically about, you know, that centre tolerating other cultures. And I think that diversity, because diversity is more than just cultural diversity, I think that the word diversity can be really important because we shouldn't... um, There are people with multiple identities. Someone might be queer as well as First Nations and, you know, a whole range of different things. So diversity on a whole range of different levels I think is important. But I I think that sometimes those words are just what's in fashion 
and I, I think that this is just where we are at this point in time. Mm. Well, please join me in thanking Eugenia Flynn for her great talk. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.